We start with BC's Health Minister, Adrian Dix, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, great to be on the show, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. And let me ask you first, uh, right now, we've seen some disturbing caseload numbers here, and I know you've got an, uh, an announcement coming up this afternoon with an event with Dr. Bonnie Henry, and we expect maybe another big number coming up this afternoon. Are we in a, are we in a third wave of, of this pandemic, in your opinion? There's a lot of COVID-19 in BC, particularly in Metro Vancouver. We had a day where there are 500 cases in the two Metro Vancouver health authorities. So there's significant transmission of COVID-19. We're still in the midst of respiratory illness season. And the good news about the vaccine is good news in the near future. But for now, it's really important that people follow public health measures because we are seeing significant transmission. That's why you see the vaccination strategy, for example, that we're using in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health and in Northern Health, three health authorities that have the highest level of transmission right now to assist in that. But we still need people to continue to make the effort, even when they are vaccinated, to physically distant, to use masks in order to reduce transmission right now. This next three or four weeks is going to be some of the hardest weeks of, of the pandemic because we have the hope of vaccination and we're vaccinating a lot of people. 450,000 first doses at the end of the weekend, 540,000 total doses, which is more than we expected for the month of March. But we've got a long way to go. Okay, speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, he's agreed to take calls from listeners. So let's open the phone lines right now. So if you have a call about uh, the vaccine, here's your opportunity to talk to the health minister. So let's open the phone line 604-280-9898. If you have a question about the vaccine for BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Minister, I had Chris Chu on the show last week from London Drugs, and he reiterated that BC Pharmacy is ready to rock here with the vaccine. They want to help out. And here's what he had to say to me on the show last week. Chris Chu from London Drugs. Right now, if uh, again, we are sending our pharmacists to their hub vaccinations, but if actually the government called us, we actually have um, all of our locations ready to go. We um, have an online booking system that everybody will be able to go to to book online a specific t- date and time um, that they could actually come to our pharmacies. That will actually help prevent the crowding in our stores. Um, we will have multiple pharmacists ready to go in teams to make sure that we can actually um, vaccinate the, the uh, significant number of people who want it. Okay, will the pharmacies in BC minister be tasked to help out here yes and uh, we announced last week uh, last uh, when we announced the update to our vaccination strategy that particularly for AstraZeneca and hopefully for Johnson and Johnson when it uh, finally arrives uh, uh, we get it from the federal government and arrives in BC the pharmacies will play a very key role especially in dealing with um, with groups of workers who are vulnerable who were listed off last week so the answer is yes in addition to that I think you're going to see pharmacy play the central role in the second dose. Remember, we're, we have to do 4.3 million first doses. We have to do 4.3 million second doses, which is a huge task, which will be starting really in the month of June. And so pharmacy is going to play a key role in both of those. And uh, we've been right. actively working with the BC Pharmacy Association to lay that out. What's happened up to now, Mike, is that we haven't actually had that much vaccine. And we've been targeting it to places like long-term care and assisted living. So we're using all the vaccine we have right now. It's not an issue of capacity, but it soon will be, and pharmacy will be a big part of it. 
Let me ask you about a comment that Premier John Horgan made last week that jumped out at a lot of people, and he was asked whether people who have been vaccinated uh, will have more freedom in the province than people who have not been vaccinated. And here's what the Premier said the other day, and then I want to get your thoughts on it. Here's John Horgan. We will be making changes as more people get vaccinated. Uh, those that have been vaccinated will have a bit more flexibility, of course, because they're less risk to the people around them uh, and the people around them are, are, are less risk to, to them. OK, what does he mean by that? The people who have been vaccinated will have more flexibility than people who have not. Well, I think people who have been vaccinated will be safer than people who are not because they'll be vaccinated. And that's important. Yeah. But I, I think, and I think the Premier has said this as well, I think it's important to be cautious here for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, the vaccine takes about 21 days to fully take effect, the first dose, right? So um, a lot of people, there won't be any vaccination parties, right? And there shouldn't be. In fact, there shouldn't be any gathering outside of your household right now. And so it takes a while for it to take effect. So it feels like a big moment and it's very moving all around the problems when people get vaccinated, but we still got to practice physical distance. But what did he, but what did he mean though when and people wear masks if, and so on? And right. So, but what did he, but what did he mean and, and, when he said more flexibility? I think, I think, uh, I think he means they'll be safer. Uh, that's how really? I take it to mean because, uh, and, uh, and they will be. I mean, we've seen these are, all three of the vaccines that are now available in BC are some of the most effective vaccines we've ever seen, and they'll be safer. But that doesn't mean things are going to change overnight. But once we reach a higher level of uh, vaccination, it'll be safer for everybody. Every time someone else gets vaccinated, it makes you and I safer, even though we haven't been vaccinated, Mike. And I think think that's what the Premier's talking about. Okay, let's take some phone calls here. Uh, Let's go to Susan on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Susan. Hi, I have Crohn's disease. Now, I think the answer to this is yes, but I can still get the vaccine, can I not? Minister. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through the, the list. We, we went through a process of people who are otherwise uh, clinically vulnerable, right? And that uh, list was actually amended. I encourage you to go to the BCCDC website and look at that. But 150,000 additional people, people who haven't already been vaccinated because they're elders, uh, who will be vaccinated in the next number of weeks, who have other medical conditions, for example, cancer, uh, adults living and with developmental disabilities, people with chronic diseases, and uh, Crohn's disease, I believe, is one of those. So that group of people will be contacted by their providers or sent a letter and engaged in the vaccination process directly. So those are people who, based on their age, wouldn't be vaccinated, but based on their illness will be. And uh, and so you can get more information about that at the BCCDC website. All right, welcome back to the show. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix is my guest. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Mal calling from Cloverdale. Hi. Yeah, hello. You hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm 87. I got my shot on March the 18th, and they told me I don't get the second shot for four months. Is that right? Minister. That's absolutely correct. Um, you don't get the shot for 16 weeks, the second shot. Uh, we made a decision, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and our team made a decision a number of weeks ago to have a four-month delay between the shot. This is based on the evidence and the need to get more people vaccinated with their first shot uh, quickly. You'll see by the evidence, and I recommend you go to the BCCDC website, and you'll see the effectiveness of the shot you got, Mel. And uh, the key, of course, is to continue to stay safe for the people around you. But that shot has proven itself effective. And I want to tell people in long-term care right now, 
we have three outbreaks. When we started immunizing people, we had 42. That shows you how effective it can be with our most vulnerable people. And Mel, because he's 87, is in that category. Mel, thank you very much for the call. Let's go to Steve on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Steve. Hi there. I have serious concerns about giving an experimental vaccine to all our frontline and essential workers. What would happen if we had a 20% adverse reaction and lost 20% of our doctors, nurses, police, military, etc.? Are you, ta- are you talking like- about the AstraZeneca vaccine? I'm talking about all of them. It's all an experiment. Minister. Uh, they're not experimental. They've all yeah. gone through uh, tens of thousands of people in clinical studies and now hundreds of millions of people in real-time uh, examples of the use of the vaccine. We publish information about adverse events, which do happen from time to time, regularly, daily update that on our websites. And I can tell you, these are some of the most effective and safe vaccines we've ever seen. And uh, we know this. uh, So far in B.C., we've given about 540,000 immunizations. So uh, people are safe. And I don't consider I consider everybody essential. And there is no way, no chance that if there was that, there, any kind of, uh, that kind of risk involved in a vaccine, these have proven themselves effective, that they would be allowed in this country we or do, in this world. We do see anti-vaxxers out there. We do see some protests. This guy is one of them. He, he, he lied to our screener about what he wanted to ask you in order, in order to uh, hit you with that question. But, but I still think it, it raises the point about, you know, are, are you concerned about any kind of anti-vax sentiments out there or are people who are hesitant to take the vaccine? I think we got to work hard to present the evidence, you know, to present the examples of safety. But I think people can build a lot of confidence. You know, AstraZeneca has been used in in the United Kingdom by tens of millions of people. There are real yeah. world studies in Scotland that show its effectiveness. These are some of the most effective vaccines we ever see. There's never no risk in in any action. There's never no risk, zero. But these are some of the most effective vaccines we've ever seen. And I think the real world evidence for the last month should show, give people lots of confidence. And yes, there's some vaccine hesitancy out there. It's natural that there would be. There is in the yeah. case of other vaccines. There's some people who feel, as your caller did, that they're against vaccines for whatever reason. They appear to be yeah. anyway. But there's some people who, who want to know more. And I think the important thing is to keep providing the evidence in a thoughtful way. And I think that people are going to join in. We saw a really high take-up in long-term care, Mike, uh, amongst people who had been through the pandemic in a way maybe most of us haven't. But I think uh, I think you see from the reaction, we had a record number of calls this weekend to sign up for appointments. People want to take these vaccines, and they're right to do so. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. My guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Kevin on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Kevin. Oh, hey, thanks for taking my call. That, that uh, previous call, that was actually great. Great response, by the way, um, because you are going to have people out there that have different opinions. And, and some ministers, thank you so much for, for actually doing that uh, and, and explaining it. Um, my concerns are a little different. Um, I'm needle phobic. It's hard enough for me to get a vaccine to begin with. Uh, so the, the question is, uh, I'm low on the food chain. I'm in my 40s. It's going to be a while till I can get a vaccine. Um, when it does come my turn, will I have access to choose which vaccine? Um, it gives me a little bit of a sense of control over, over the process. Well, uh, uh, here's what I'd say. I'd say that if you're in a category of workers, for example, there's the option of AstraZeneca. It is possible to wait for your age-based vaccine, but there isn't too much choice here. 
uh, if you're in the age-based program, so say you're 45 and you're waiting for the 45 to 49 category, then you're likely to get either Pfizer or Moderna. That's what we're using for our age-based approach, and there isn't going to be much choice in that. With respect to AstraZeneca, and your turn comes up and you decide to wait two or three weeks to get Pfizer or Moderna, you can do that. But other than that, yeah. it's not it's not a la carte. You're going to uh, <laughs> need to take the, uh, the vaccine that you're offered. I appreciate that lots of people struggle with these things. And look, um, I have type 1 diabetes, Mike. I know about uh, taking shots. And yeah, I can I, tell you, I take four of them a day. And so, wow. and I know that some people are um, struggle with that, including people with diabetes, by the way. So I, I really respect your caller's situation. Okay, and we I just want got, to know that we're taking yeah. it really seriously. And he's not going to have a lot of choice, but I think the vaccines he's got a choice of are going to be very safe for him. Just one minute left. Jamie and Burnaby, please ask your question quickly, okay? Go ahead. Yeah, I got a bad. If, if do we have a choice between the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer or any other vaccine, am I, when it comes my time, do I have to take AstraZeneca or can I take a Pfizer vaccine on request? I think, it, I think you just answered that question, Minister. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah go there's, ahead. There's no, no choice, but if you're in the age-based program, so you're getting it, say you're 55 and you're, uh, like I am, 56, and your age comes around, for example, then uh, you're going to get the Pfizer or the yeah. Moderna. Those two, the Pfizer or the Moderna. So let's if say you're, you're let's a, say you're a first responder and you're offered the AstraZeneca. You can choose to wait till your age bracket comes up to get the Pfizer vaccine instead. Is that right? You can, but I recommend yeah. you take the AstraZeneca. Okay. All right, <laughs> okay. Minister. Thanks for coming on today. Take care. Eh? All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Metro Vancouver's gang wars here. A double homicide in Richmond last week. Two men found dead inside a burned building in a residential area of Richmond. That happened on Friday. Two men in their 20s inside. Police saying uh, they believe this was gang-related. Let's have a little listen to this. This is Detective Lara Jansen from the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. The injuries suffered by the victims were consistent with a homicide, so IHIT was called in. IHIT is asking anyone with information, including CCTV footage and dash cam footage from both Rathburn Drive and the area of the burnt-out BMW in Surrey, to please contact IHIT. Detective Lara Jansen there. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kim Bolin, crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun. and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Kim, thanks a lot for coming on. Anytime, Mike. Okay, what do we know about this particular case? Well, it's pretty shocking. I know we've said that many times before, you know, with a 14-year-old killed recently, with the trend to have burned vehicles related to hits on people. This, to me, is new, where a house is actually set on fire with the victims inside. So uh, these guys are brothers in their 20s. They grew up in Surrey. Um, my information is that they'd had a falling out recently with someone who was once their gang ally and uh, that that might have led to this. But obviously, we'll have to wait and see how the police investigation unfolds. The older brother, Chatton Dinza, had um, some trafficking convictions. He was before the courts right now. Uh, the younger brother didn't have a criminal record, but was also believed to have been involved. So, you know, for two young guys in their 20s to be... Uh, living in a house in Richmond that looks like it was a rental property when they're from Surrey, you know, could be a sign that they were hiding out from someone. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The two men have been identified, as you mentioned, Chatan Dinza, 25 years old. His brother, Joe Ban Dinza, 23, uh, found in this 
burned a burned out building in in Richmond and you heard the uh, the officer there in that clip we played Kim saying that the uh, the injuries were consistent with a with a hit so it sounds like I don't know maybe who knows maybe they were shot and then the house was set on fire you know like is this like you mentioned that we've seen some hits with like burned out vehicles lately what is that like a gang calling card or a marker well, it, it was one particular gang that sort of started that. Um, so it was sort of, you know, and they think it's destroying evidence, right? So they're maybe yeah. stealing a vehicle and they're using it for a hit and then they're burning it, right? But um, all you have to do is look back to 2011 when, uh, you know, infamous Red Scorpion gangster Jonathan Bacon was murdered in Kelowna and uh, those hitters burned the vehicle. Police were still able to get quite a bit of evidence out of that vehicle, right? And they were eventually guilty police in that case. So, I think that, you know, sometimes these young gangsters who are caught up in this conflict, you know, are acting almost like they're in a movie and they think they're destroying all this evidence. But in reality, police often get a lot of evidence, even if, you know, they're attempting to destroy that evidence. Right. Speaking to Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun, and every time we get one of these these hits, uh, these are difficult cases sometimes for the police to solve, but... I know there's like an active grapevine out there and there are postings on social media and I know you've got your, your finger on that on that pulse. Like, what are you hearing about this one? Do, you, do we know what gangs, you know, these guys were mixed up with? My information is that they may have switched um, alliances, if you will, recently. I don't have a specific gang name for them, uh, but uh, the people that they were apparently in conflict with have some connection to the United Nations gang Um you know, but I don't want to get into naming names because there are names okay. floating around in terms of people who might have had some knowledge of this going down, right? So, yeah. um, but, you know, as we've sort of said before, you can be in one group one day and then you switch to another group the other day and your former best pal is the one that's coming after you and is also the one that knows your whereabouts, right? Because that's someone you hung out with for a long period of time. So they know how to find out where you are. Uh, because I think that's probably also fairly startling for the general public that these guys seem to be aware of their enemies' movements at all times, right? Um, I also know from police sources, and we've seen it in some court cases as well, is sometimes these guys are so sophisticated that they're actually putting tracking devices on the vehicles of the people that that, uh, they're targeting. So then that's how they know where they're living, right? Um, Sometimes it's it's girlfriends or ex-girlfriends who are you know, saying, oh, he'll be at this place at this time. So, you know, it's it's fairly shocking how quickly they turn on each other. Yeah, that's incredible. You mentioned that the, the two brothers who were killed last week were from Surrey. This hit took place in, in Richmond. Police, interestingly, saying there was another scene in Surrey that may be tied to this invest, investigation where they found a, a burned-out black BMW SUV uh, a short time after the Richmond incident was was reported. So police investigating some links there. Like quite often, I don't know, when we hear about a, a hit in Richmond, is that is that unusual? I mean, this is going on all over Metro, right? It's totally going on all over yeah. Metro. And what's happening too is, you know, when people grew up in one neighborhood and their gang alliances may be in that city, such as Surrey or such as Vancouver, sometimes, you know, their idea of hiding out is to remain within the lower mainland, but maybe to go to Coquitlam, right? Or maybe to go to Richmond. So, you know, we saw a couple of murders in Richmond earlier in the year, and they were not people that grew up there, right? So, you know, that is sometimes what happens. They're renting there. There's also a lot of nice, you know, high-end rental um, suites available in Richmond right now. These guys often look for 
um, this was a house, uh, ironically, but often they look for for towers uh, and they, you know, rent in these towers because they think that, you know, they're safer there, quite frankly, if someone's after them. Right, right. Speaking to Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun, you wrote a a great article last week, Kim, on speaking of, you mentioned one of the Bacon brothers earlier and about the release of Jared Bacon from, uh, from prison. Can you tell me the latest on that? Well, Jared Bacon was convicted uh, several years ago uh, and uh, sentenced to a net term of just over nine years for trying to import 100 kilos of cocaine into Canada. The people that he was working with were undercover police officers, so he got nailed in that. Um, He has reached his statutory release several times. That's the two-thirds mark of a sentence where pretty well everyone gets out. But when he gets out, they put these special conditions on him, you know, because he has... Uh, maintained his criminal links even while he's in prison, right? So he keeps violating those special conditions and ending up back in jail. The first time it was like a fight outside a strip bar. Um, there have been several incidents. So he was out again. He's living in another province. Uh, they're deleting all those details from the parole records because he says that he believes he's still at risk. Uh, but he's still considered a gang leader. Uh, so Last December, he was visiting with a girlfriend, uh, and they did one of these uh, curfew checks or checks on him, and he was seen through a window deleting a bunch of messages on a phone before uh, the parole officer got into the suite. So he was sent back to prison, uh, but the parole board has decided to release him again because they said they didn't have any hard evidence that he was breaking his parole conditions. Oh, okay, so if the police saw him, what looked like a, he was deleting stuff from his phone, would that that's not a, a violation of his parole conditions then? Well, if it depends on what was deleted, and they, you know, yeah. obviously they're not going to probably put the resources into do a forensic analysis of that phone, right? That isn't normally what they would do for someone who's already served their time in theory and is out on conditions. Uh, they said it was suspicious behavior, but uh, that the evidence, whatever was on there, had already been deleted, so they couldn't prove that he was potentially associating with people that he shouldn't be associating with or, you know, making uh, links in the drug trade, which is what landed him in prison in the first place. Um, but what was really interesting in this most recent parole decision was just how little insight this guy has into his criminal life. Uh, you know, he's lost a brother to murder. His other yeah. brother's been convicted of conspiracy to commit murder in the Surrey 6 case. And yet he just um, comes across, when you read through these records, as a fairly ruthless thug willing to head right back out and start over again. Yeah, the Bacon brothers are notorious. You mentioned on Twitter the other day that uh, it, it just hit you. You've been writing about, about these brothers for like 13 years now. Um, so they were they were associated with the Red Scorpions, right? Like, are they still a force to be reckoned with, that gang? Yes, they are a force yeah. to be reckoned with. And, um, you know, there are ties also to the Hells Angels, and that's one of the things that the Pearl Board has noted and Jared Bacon's history uh, over the last several years in custody is that he maintains uh, his relationship with, um, you know, this senior criminal organization is how they describe the Hells Angels uh, in these documents. And that, you know, they say that the Red Scorpions is still an influential gang in Western Canada. Uh, so we know that the Red Scorpions are, you know, in this area right now, they're deeply involved in this gang conflict. You know, they've been aligned with the Kang uh, brothers and of course we had Gary Kang killed in probably one of the highest profile murders this year 
uh, in early January. Right, right. Last question for you, Kim. Like when when a guy like Jared Bacon is released on conditions, where does he does he have to live in like a halfway house or what what kind of conditions does he does he face? Is he under? They have said he has to live in a halfway house or, you know, some other uh, Correctional Service Canada facility or an approved location, right? Uh, We believe he's in a halfway house. One of the things he's strongly argued is that he shouldn't have to do that because it puts him at higher risk because obviously everyone in the system knows where these halfway houses are. So uh, they have, you know, taken some steps to hide his location. We know it's outside of B.C., uh, but once his warrant expires, probably in several more months, he'll be able to move. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the Metro Vancouver gang war. You heard my discussion there with Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun uh, about the hit last week in Richmond with two brothers, 25-year-old Chaten Dinza, his 23-year-old brother, Joe Ban Dinza. Uh, their dead bodies found in a burned-out building in a uh, burned-out home in Richmond on Friday. Let's discuss now with my guest, Cash Heed, former chief of the West Van Police Department. He is the former solicitor general of the province. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Cash, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. One of the things that we talked with Kim Bolin a moment ago is uh, we see, we continue to see these crime scenes where a fire is lit. Like we see a murder and then there's a, a, a car is burned out or we, we see a gang hit like these suspected hits on Friday and then someone sets fire to the home it appears is that like you know they're trying to trying to burn evidence or is it is it kind of like a warning or a marker to other gangs or is it both well it started out as wanting to uh, destroy the evidence burning the evidence and, and that still is a common theme in this but it seems to be a marker for any of the gang violence we have uh, regardless where it is throughout the Lower Mainland, the majority of vehicles that are burned are usually in the Surrey area or even in the Richmond area, the far east side of Richmond, where these two murders occurred. Yeah, no, and does that work? Like when, when they set fire to a building or they set fire to a car, does that, does that destroy the evidence or the, can the police still recover evidence there? Well, it's hard to recover evidence from a, a crime scene, but Mike, our uh, solve rate for these murders is atrocious here in uh, Metro Vancouver. And I think uh, not only is the evidence gathering part of the problem, but it's the fact that, you know, one day that they're the suspect, next day that they're the victim. Now, we've had this ongoing problem for over 25 years, so law enforcement is well aware of that fact. And, you know, this ongoing problem that we're exposed to and reminded by law enforcement continually that it's part of the lower mainland gang conflict, that's part of the problem. Because if we're going to deal with it because our success in solving these crimes is so limited, we've got to make sure we have, and you've heard me say this before, a comprehensive strategy in place that suppresses the violence, intervenes in the disputes, and prevents the activity from continuing because the public is tired of hearing about this conflict but not seeing any significant results to stop it. Yeah, it seems like every time we have one of these hits, the police will say that the victims were known to police or they had known gang ties. What does that say to you that police certainly have knowledge of who are in these gangs, maybe their perhaps their whereabouts, what they're up to, and yet when we see the murders, they're difficult to solve? 
you know, we've got to look at this, and I've been thinking about it from the latest uh, two homicides that occurred in a city that I uh, live in. And we've got to rethink law enforcement, Mike, because years ago we used to rely a lot on confidential informants in policing to get the bulk of our information and to stop these types of activities. That's seems to be uh, the strategy that's put aside right now. We're unable to do that. So maybe we've got to rethink and, you know, the calls for police reform need to be around. Uh, The police are just going to be a reactive unit. We are going to have to find some way to find other avenues to be proactive or intervening in in these disputes to stop them. Well, okay, we just got over just a little over a minute left here, Cash, but what would be at the top of your to-do list on, on police reform in Metro if it was up to you? Uh, Metro uh, Policing, one unified police service for all of Metro Vancouver, and I've been an advocate of that for over 25 years now, and I'll continue to be an advocate of that. Now, on the gang strategy, and quickly to say this, we do have that somewhat, but it's still not addressing the problem. We have CFSEU that's looking at a regional and provincial approach to this, so it's not down to the local independent municipal agencies to deal with. We need to be more of a unified approach to make sure it's effective to make sure we're accountable to the public and it's efficient in any way we can mike because we have to stop this activity okay so police amalgamation around metro vancouver as you mentioned this is an idea that's been out there you've been an advocate for it for a long time difficult to get done politically though right we got 30 seconds like how do you overcome the political resistance to this like local mayors who like their own police force Well, you're going to have that resistance from the local government. It has to be driven by the provincial government. Policing is a responsibility of the provincial government under the Peace Act here in British Columbia, and it's uh, downplayed to the local municipalities. But it has to be the energy, the policy from the provincial government. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Another week. Here we go again with another week, and I just spoke to Adrian Dix, the health minister, mm-hmm. who says that the next four weeks will be the most difficult weeks yep. of the entire pandemic, even though we've got the vaccine online. Yep, and he's not the only one saying that. Um, March and April are considered critical because there's a rising amount of COVID. The virus is spreading out there. I did a report last night on Global pointing out that our daily average case numbers now, seven-day rolling average, is the highest since it was in early January. The number of hospitalizations are the highest since early February. The number of ICU cases are the highest since December 18th. And our active case numbers, uh, people are within the 14-day incubation period, are the highest since early January. So what we're seeing is we saw a second wave begin in September, October, really started to boost up in in November into mid-December. Then we started to descend a bit. Right. And we started to slowly get the numbers down until about the second week of February. But since then, we've either plateaued or we've been steadily increasing in all four of those categories. So the only good thing right now, well, there's two good things. Our mortality rate has is, is gone down significantly because most people, most of our deaths were associated with long-term care residents. And they've all been vaccinated. And that means the number of people dying in long-term care has basically gone down to right. pretty well zero. Yeah. And so our mortality rate is really down from what it was in November, December. That's great news. Number of people vaccinated, uh, we've hit, I think, 10% of the target population right now, which is great, and that's going to continue to go up. But the hospitalizations, ICUs, and case numbers are likely going to remain high for some time. 
Okay, and and that, that begs no, the that, question: Is this a third wave? Well, that, I just anticipated I was going to ask you: Like, is this the third wave that we're in? Now, I asked I asked Dix that a short time ago. Is this a third wave? And what we're seeing, he sort of gave me a non-committal yeah, answer. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see a health minister say it's a third wave yet. Why Although not? We've got some epidemiologists saying yeah. perhaps. The other thing, of course, is the variants. So the UK yeah. variant, the B one one and seven, is on the ascendancy, and we've had more than five hundred cases in one week. Almost 500 cases of, of that particular variant in one week. Now, keep in mind, a lot of the variants are discovered post-incubation period because it's, it's done through genomic sequencing tests, which can take some time. But keep an eye on the number of active cases. I think we're 143 active variant cases. That could start to replace COVID-19 as the dominant virus, as it has in Ontario, as it has in much of Europe. And that may be very well where we're we're headed in BC. We're not there yet. Okay, so he was hesitant to kind of say it was a third wave, but he did say that we're in the toughest part of the entire pandemic here in the next month. And he talked about the sort of concurrent optimism going on with the vaccine being rolled out, but also these case numbers going up in the variant cases that we're seeing. So is is there a danger that you know people start to relax or let their guard down I think you're knowing seeing that the already is coming i think you're seeing people relax yeah. already i think the good weather has people yeah. uh relaxing uh even though you're allowed to gather with uh up to 10 people the same 10 people not you know mix and match yeah. all the time uh but i've just noticed there seems to be more activity in stores there seems to be more activity uh in restaurants uh i don't go to restaurants but i walk by them and check on them through the windows and i've just noticed there seems to be more people sitting at tables again not necessarily violating the six at a table but it's obvious that people are associating with each other indoors when they don't live together okay and that's not advice. bring on the vaccine you know this is so it's such an important period that we're, we're going through here right now what about this afternoon are we going to have an, we got another three-day uh, case count coming up yeah and we've been averaging almost 560 cases a day we yep. had 737 on friday yeah hopefully we don't have uh, more 700 case days so you could be seeing like a 1500 case count oh, if it's so, 1500 uh, 1500 would actually be a relief because that would yeah. be we'd be down from our daily case average the concern is if we're over 2000 uh it means we're our our daily case average continues to grow 292 people in hospital that's a number i've always since day one, always keep an eye on the hospitalization yep. number, and hopefully that number doesn't go up, but it's been inching up steadily. Okay, that news conference coming this afternoon. The last week, last week on the show, we talked about this uh, remark that Premier John Horgan made the other day, where he was asked, look, if you get the vaccine and someone else is unvaccinated, if you've already received the vaccine, would you be allowed to have more freedom to, to do do certain things mm-hmm. in the province? Like, would there be kind of a two-tier system no. of people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated in terms of what you're allowed to do and he basically said yeah i mean he said yeah they bc is going toward that uh, a system like that that jumped out at you last week and and myself as well he's going like well no. i don't know did horgan put his foot in it on this now i just asked dicks about that mm-hmm. i played the clip for him and here's what dick said to me i think i think uh, i think he means they'll be safer uh, that's how really? I take it to mean because uh, and uh, and they will be. I mean, we've seen these are all three of the vaccines that are now available in BC are some okay. of the most effective vaccines we've ever seen, and they'll be safer. But that doesn't mean things are going to change overnight. But once we reach a higher level of uh, vaccination, it'll be safer for everybody. Every time someone else gets vaccinated, it makes you and I safer, even though we haven't been vaccinated, Mike. And I yeah. think uh, I think that's what the premier's talking about. 
Okay, so <laughs> what the premier meant think, to say? He, yeah, he thinks that's what, he thinks that's what the premier's yeah, talking about. Well, so to be clear, and, and Dr. Barney Henry actually jumped in on the briefing on Thursday to answer this question and to make it clear: things do not change when you get vaccinated. We are still in the following public health rules together. There's no difference between people being vaccinated and unvaccinated right now. Uh, we're, we're only at 10% of the population being vaccinated. That does not mean 10% of the population doesn't have to wear a mask, doesn't have to keep their social distancing, and somehow have uh, lesser restrictions. We're all in this in the same boat, whether you're vaccinated or not, and that's not going to change probably until summer or fall. When we have so many people vaccinated, we may ach achieve herd immunity, but we're not there yet. So the premier, I think, Again, I don't think he, he meant uh, ill here, ill will or anything like that. I think he just sort of misread the situation, that this is not a situation where if you get vac vaccinated, you suddenly get to shuck off a bunch of restrictions. Well, that's what he said. I mean, he said basically people who have been got the vaccine will have more flexibility uh, to do activities that other people would no. presumably not. That's what he said, and, and um, we had the minister there kind of reinterpreting. Well, you're, you're, well if, get vaccinated because you will. Yeah. It will be safer. You will be well, safer. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean you get to suddenly, you know, go f uh, gather with fifty people in a hockey yeah. arena. Okay, let's talk about the federal conservative convention that took oh, yeah. place last week, uh, virtual, of course, online. We had a, a keynote speech from Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, and then we had this controversial vote on climate change uh, by the party delegates. So let me play, first of all, Aaron O'Toole, the Green Party leader. Now, this is in his speech before the vote, okay, mm -hmm. by party members on climate change, and here's what the conservative leader had to say. We all want a green future for our children. We cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. But a conservative government will not solve this problem on the backs of working Canadians. Okay, so he's basically sticking to the line that they'll get rid of Trudeau's carbon tax. But the, the key note there that he had there was the debate is over on climate well, change. Not over not going party. Back. It's not over right. so party. Then, so what happened after that? So then they had a vote on whether to include two sentences in their policy platform, which is basically to recognize that climate uh, change is real. Right. And that the conservatives would be very—they're um, willing to act. Willing like to the, act. The actual, the actual wording of this resolution was: climate change is real, and a conservative government mm -hmm. is willing to act to confront it. And, and the party members voted that down. Fifty-four percent against, yeah. led by mostly grassroots delegates in in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, yeah. and BC. Uh, Quebec and uh, some of the maritime provinces voted in favor of it, but this is a very divisive issue for the conservatives. You can just see Justin <laughs> Trudeau and and Jagmeet Singh. Just rubbing their hands on this because this is this is just music to their ears. You've got an issue now that divides the Conservative Party. Yeah. Uh, that is, the Conservatives are just behind the public on this. I mean, climate change has has leapfrogged other issues as a issue, particularly in the suburbs and urban areas of the country. Okay, this vote though by party members on a policy resolution, it's not it's not binding. No, on Aaron the party. Okay, Aaron O'Toole can unveil a platform come the next election that. If he wants, has a carbon tax, but can have a very aggressive anti-climate uh, change strategy. It's, it, right. It's, so it's not binding, but it is more the optics of this and a reflection of where the party grassroots are at. Well, I think and, it it it, it uh, illustrates the potential divisions in the party that you just described. Now, let me play this here for you. Now, this is O'Toole later, okay? Now, he's asked for his reaction on this vote by party members to vote down this resolution recognizing c climate change. And here's what he said. What is your response to the failure of the climate change resolution? We will have a serious and comprehensive plan 
on climate change to reduce emissions in the next election. Climate change and fighting it is important to the Conservative Party of Canada. Right. So it doesn't matter that this resolution was voted down. They'll still bring out an election platform that recognizes climate change in a plan. But it, it gives the Liberals and NEP a pretty good stick to beat over the head of the, of the Conservatives' current election. That you may say one thing, Mr. O'Toole: How can we trust you, given that your party is against the notion that climate uh, change is real? So, uh, not a good day for the Conservatives. And Mr. O'Toole's it, problem he's got it's him versus his own party. I mean, he's he's uh, in the wrong lane when it comes to a number yeah, of but, issues. But you know, for people who are die-hard conservative members who actually go to the trouble of registering to be a delegate and to vote mm-hmm. in this convention. I mean, that is like your bedrock base of the conservative party, and yeah. it just shows where they are at. So is should that really not be that surprising? There's a lot of Alberta delegates there, as you mentioned. Yeah, and uh, there was a lot. There's a strong social conservative element in that, right. in that convention as well, yeah. which uh, again is a problem for O'Toole, but it's not one that he necessarily can't manage. It's just another challenge for him. As as the next election hovers into view, uh, he's got some divisions, and and there's reports his own caucus, you know, are upset yeah. with a number of measures. All right, welcome back. Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry is my guest. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on yourself. Phil in Vancouver. Hey, Phil. Yes, hello. I've enjoyed listening to both of you since your humble beginnings. So anyways, what I wanted to say was uh, uh, what happened to the 100% revenue neutral component? Uh, I remember when Carol Taylor was finance minister back in 2008, she was the first politician in B.C. to bring in a revenue neutral component to a carbon tax. I think the Conservatives would slay the Liberals if they did that because Trudeau has made zero promises about a 100% revenue neutral component. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for the call. Yeah, revenue neutrality has sort of ebbed um, over the years. It started out as revenue neutral, BC's carbon tax. Uh, that has stopped being revenue neutral. Uh, and revenue neutral means if they increase the carbon tax, they're supposed to lower another tax yes. uh, so off, it, to offset it. It nets out at zero or less. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't been happening. Which I always thought was dubious to begin with. But yeah, anyway. it's a, it's moving targets. But again, yeah. the, the politics of carbon taxes are fascinating because Gordon Campbell, of all people, brought it in. In, yeah. in BC, the NDP opposed it. Yes, if you recall. Sure, Since, I remember Horgan up in the legislature ranting and raving about how bad it is, and now yeah. he, now he uh, jacks it up every year. Exactly, and so it's uh, it's it's shifting sands on on carbon taxes. And I'm not sure in this upcoming election campaign if there is one this spring. I mean, we saw in the BC election there really were no issues. It just was status quo. And maybe well, he's going to have to say something. Time. You know, O'Toole's going to have to do something about climate change and some sort of carbon well, pricing, he's going to have presumably. to change he's going to have to get the conversation going on, on a number of issues to change the the dial of the electorate and so far it's a it's a challenge for him let's go to andrew and burnaby hey andrew oh hey thanks for taking my call sure um just wanted to talk about the uh the uh, vaccination i heard from a couple of different healthcare providers that some vaccine was going into the garbage can because it was expiring before having a chance to go into people's arms um so i guess my question is, have you heard anything like that? And I'm also wondering why it seems to me the media is kind of going soft on our provincial health care leaders because I think they're only just starting to get to persons in their in their 70s right now, and, and that track record seems very bad to me. Okay, okay Andrew, thanks. 
Well, uh, BC has more older people than any other province. I mean, that, and so that's been a challenge to get the 90-year-olds and 80-year-olds vaccinated. We're in the 70s this week. We should get through everybody up to the age of 70, 75 and older this week. Um, the numbers of vaccinations are starting to go up significantly. We, we were at- How are we doing compared to other provinces? More than Alberta, but in okay. terms of demographics, because we have different demographics, they are at a younger stage in terms of age. So we're vaccinating more people, but they've got younger people. And what about and what about the caller saying they'd heard that some expired vaccine? Yeah, so this happened. This there was some um, incidents early on where again some of the vaccines once well once Pfizer's on is thawed, you can't refreeze it. You have to use it. Yeah. And so there have been instances in the past where you've they've gotten through the allotment of people who were going to get the vaccine, frontline healthcare workers, and then there are some administrators who aren't necessarily frontline workers who have been vaccinated because uh, otherwise it just goes bad. So you yeah, might as so well use it. People have to realize it's in our interest to have everyone vaccinated not yeah. necessarily on an orderly fashion if there's vaccines kicking around at the end of the day put them in the arms of people no matter who they are let's go to james on the line in vancouver no i think hi talk? thanks for yeah. taking my call guys yeah go ahead um I, I like i could really care less about the posturing of any of the parties i want to see a budget and i want to see how badly yeah. screwed we are because of this because there's been no transparency and i'm yeah. also wondering why there isn't more coverage on the fact that chevron's pulled out of lng up in kitimat and nobody's talking about the monster loss that bc's going to have over that Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. A good point. The, the LNG uh, uh, pipeline uh, or the LNG Canada project is certainly in jeopardy, and this is. But again, what we've learned in this pandemic, so many things have fallen off the table in terms of, of big issues. I mean, the Site C dam has gone from almost doubled in budget, and uh, people aren't even talking about. It. So again, these big projects. Uh, it's interesting. There's fifteen thousand vaccines on their way to the workers at Site C, LNG Canada. Uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline and Coastal Gas Link. All those projects have been in the news for different reasons over the years, and there's just not even a heartbeat there. The wife of former Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson posted a video on her Facebook page last night. It details her ex- painful experience as the victim of anti-Asian hate, which we know is on the rise in this city. Our show contributor, John Jang, now takes us through that video and her story. John. Good morning, Mike. Eileen Park, the former director of communications for the mayor of Portland and wife of former Vancouver mayor Gregor Robertson, has spoken out. Last week, Park and Robertson's marriage was featured in Vogue magazine just days before the Atlanta spa shootings that left eight people dead, including six Asian women. Park says being featured in the magazine has resulted in her being targeted with anti-Asian messages of hate. But there was also an avalanche of anti-Asian hate on news of our interracial marriage. And despite an unprecedented dialogue happening right now about the dire consequences of hypersexualizing Asian women, I was bombarded with hate-filled messages. People laughing about men having yellow fever, Asian women having universal slots, and comment after comment dismissing me as a young Asian girl. Park also says that this is nothing new, going back to her time working for the Portland mayor's office, where her workplace credibility was attacked simply because of what she looked like. And the discrimination started almost immediately. Wherever I went, whoever I stood next to at an event, especially if it was a male colleague, rumors would start. I must be sleeping with that person. 
How could someone who looks like me not be? That assumption right there is racist. Why? Because of the long history of hypersexualizing Asian women. Park explains that these constant attacks and harassment were detrimental to her happiness and mental health. But not only that, it manifested in non-stop harassment. Those racialized assumptions, they reached the wider public and I faced endless taunts on social media, at the grocery store, in front of my apartment. And I also received death threats during the nightly violent demonstrations in Portland. If it wasn't for my partner, Gregor, and a few friends I confided in, I don't know where I'd be today. There were many nights I didn't want to live anymore. Park says that the rise of anti-Asian violence is the result of systematic oppression of Asian professionals, especially women, and that it's part of a bigger issue in society. We Asian women have spent a lifetime not being believed, not taken seriously, not given opportunities of leadership as a result. And when we take up space and when we speak out, and shut down misinformation, suddenly people, including reporters, get upset and they get defensive. That's because society has normalized repressing Asian voices when we make them feel uncomfortable. Park hopes that by sharing her experiences and story that she can educate the public on what it means to be a victim of anti-Asian hate. So I hope you share in my grief and be allies in shutting down this kind of language against Asian women and those kind of rumors and that kind of hate. And what may seem like harmless gossip does real damage because dehumanization, it starts with words and words reinforce stereotypes and hate. And we cannot let violence continue to be the end result of such hate. Park's message ends with optimism, encouraged by the fact that this very conversation is taking place all over the world and shining a light on what she calls an invisible pain. And I want to end with this because it wasn't all bad. There were reporters who called me the minute they heard this bullshit and shut it down. And for what I spoke about earlier about the reaction to my wedding, there were strangers I didn't even know who sent me such beautiful messages of support. And those messages gave me so much strength. And I want you to know your kindness has been a lifeline for me. And I am blown away that for the first time in history, we are having an international conversation about the historically invisible pain of our Asian friends and family. And that truly gives me hope for change. The entire video, which runs over seven minutes long, can be found on her Facebook page at facebook.com slash Eileen Park TV. This contributor will also add that while I'm personally not a father just yet, one day I hope I can be, and I would be so lucky to have beautiful daughters and beautiful sons, and to know that their place in this world would not be questioned simply based on what they look like. Back to you, Mike. 
All right. Thank you for that, John. That was John's report on Eileen Park, the wife of former Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson and her powerful Facebook uh, video last night. And John joins me now. It was it was great to hear some extended segments from her video, which a lot of people may not have had an opportunity to see in its entirety. They may have heard a, a newspaper headline or a, new, or a short news report. I, I, I thought it was great to hear a, a longer detail of what she had to say. What did you think of uh, the, the points that she raised, John? I think they're fair points. Uh, I will say that, of course, I am a Korean-Canadian. I'm an Asian individual, but I am also a man. So in that sense, I'm still a little bit more privileged than uh, somebody who would be a Korean-Canadian that's also a woman. So uh, I I do think she makes a a lot of strong points. I I know that in years past, uh, her appearance and her ethnicity was discussed, maybe not criticized, but it was discussed when Mayor uh, Gregor Robertson was still the mayor of Vancouver. And it was sort of, I guess, water cooler conversations. Like, can you believe Mayor Gregor is is dating a Korean and dating an Asian? That's so strange. Just the fact that people would even have those opinions, I think, uh, alludes to the fact that people clearly have this level of, um, uh, I don't know, uncomfort, discomfort with the fact that a visible minority is in uh, such an esteemed position, if you will. Yeah, well, I think the I think the solution is to speak out about it and talk about it, and I think that mm-hmm. she did. She certainly did the right thing. I thought it was really powerful the things that she had to say. You mentioned uh, John that you're uh, Korean Canadian. Have you have you experienced racism in your own life? I, I have. Uh, I grew up uh, in in many different neighborhoods and communities around the Lower Mainland, uh, prim- uh, primarily in Cloverdale. And uh, when I was growing up, I was honestly I was like one of the first uh, Korean Canadians to sort of immigrate to at least that new neighborhood in Cloverdale, which has grown so much. And over the years, I, I did uh, become a victim to certain racist comments. I remember one day I was walking from one end of my school, high school, to another to to get to class, and in the middle of my walking through students and walking through the hallways, an older student by a few years who didn't even know me, Mike, uh, made a racist remark to me as we were just walking past each other for for no reason whatsoever. And that has always stuck with me as uh, just one of those things where these comments, although it might not seem like it would impact somebody, uh, when you hear it again and again, it can have huge detrimental impacts to your mental health. And the fact that I'm 30 years old now, this thing happened basically half my life ago, and I still remember that day. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I know the pain. The pain has got to be real on this. Like, when, you, when we take a look at what's going on right now, like the number of hate crimes that are on the rise ar- around the world, but especially right here in Vancouver, where police are reporting an increase of over 700 percent in mm-hmm. hate crime reports. Like, what are you noticing in the city? Like over the past week, for example, like, are you seeing more of this? I think it's really tough. Now, I'll say I don't uh, venture outside when I simply don't have to, simply because I'm trying to avoid confrontations and avoid interactions uh, because of COVID-19, but also maybe subconsciously because of what I've been seeing and what I've been reading. Like you say, over 700% increase in Asian-related hate crimes uh, this year as opposed to what it was last year. And and I have to think those two things are almost correlated, Mike. And maybe right now, a part of me deep inside doesn't feel like it's safe for me to go outside. And uh, this past week, I'll tell you this i had a phone conversation with my parents last week and i usually call them regularly just to see how things are going they live in alberta they live and operate a business out of canmore alberta small town and for the first time ever i had to ask them have you been the victim of a racist confrontation at work thankfully i'm glad that i can say 
they uh, they answered no, we haven't. They sometimes get confrontations about the mandatory mask policy and things of that nature, but they haven't been victims to racism, which is great news. But the very fact I even had to ask this very question, Mike, made yeah. me very uncomfortable. And I think it just shines another light onto what it's like right now being somebody like me. This is a, it's a real big problem. What do you think the solution is? conversations as Eileen was saying having these conversations as you were saying as well the fact that we're raising awareness to this and making sure that it's no longer an invisible pain there is no easy solution it's not going to happen overnight but the more we talk about it the more we can help understand thank you John thank you Mike